read chapter 4. Now, Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. And then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, Buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, The day you buy the field from, um, from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, Buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses that I have brought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and to Marlon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Marlon, I have brought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead of his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life, and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. And Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Us. <coughs> Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. Can I say first of all a huge thank you for letting me share this week with you. Um, I've been truly um, humbled and blessed as you've related your stories. I've been inspired by what God is doing through you 
and deeply grateful to him for the work that he's doing um, through you um, in, in the world. It is very easy if you are a reader of the Daily Mail in the UK to think that all is doom and gloom and the church is one step away from extinction and it's wonderful to come here and to discover yet again that the Daily Mail is wrong. <coughs> Let's pray. Let me just read some words from a song that kind of in lies behind some of what we want to say today. O love that will not let me go, I rest my weary soul in thee. I give thee back the life I owe, that in thine ocean's depths its flow may richer, fuller be. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are the love that will not let us go. You gave your life for us. Please may we give our lives back to you so that you can make us more than we could ever be and that we would discover in the ocean depths of your love a richer, fuller life. We ask this, Lord, for the good of others. We ask this for the glory of God. We ask this for the hastening of the day of which we've sung, in which the whole world will come to see that Jesus is Lord. What I've sought to do um, this week is, is essentially to preach to myself and to give you the privilege or opportunity or however you regard it uh, to overhear. And I want to ask myself this morning, what do I believe in? What do I believe in? Th there's a wonderful story at the start of the Alpha course that goes something like uh, this. Uh, a missionary couple are making their way across the desert when they run out of petrol. Uh, running out of petrol isn't the biggest issue because they've just passed a filling station. The big problem is what are they going to put the petrol in? And as they ransack the back of the jeep, the best thing they can come up with is their baby son's potty. Well, they do the deal and make their way back carrying this precious cargo very carefully. And as they're pouring the petrol out of the potty into the Jeep, uh, a large black Mercedes pulls up alongside them. A darkened widow, uh, window is uh, lowered, and the startled face of an oil sheik appears, who says, I do not share your religion, but I greatly admire your faith. <laughs> I do not share your religion, but I greatly admire your faith. Well, I have faith. But what do I have faith in? Do I have faith in faith? Do I have faith in church? Do I have faith in my kind of theological system? Do I have faith in ideas about God? Or do I really have faith in him? Do I sense that my tiny, little, rather grubby hand is in the hand of a God who loves me and cares for me more than I can know? Do I have my little hand in the hand of a love that will not let me go? Do I really believe in the person of God? 
and the presence of God with me really, actually, all the time? And do I believe in the purposes of God that will not be thwarted by the careless things you do to me and the stupid things I do to myself? Oh, love that will not let me go. Have I come to think like everyone else around me when it comes to God's control of my life? Do I just pay lip service to the idea of his sovereignty? His direct rule over my life? When my plans look like they need to be shelved or abandoned? When there's a danger that I may not be able to cover every angle? When I feel that I've lost control? What marks me out then? What makes me different from anybody else? Despair? Feverish attempt to kind of get back in control again? Or childlike trust? See, God's sovereignty never removes my responsibility. Never stops me from needing to make the best decisions I can, to, to pray hard, to weigh up the issues as carefully as I know how, to, to act when it's time to act, to wait when it's time to wait, to try to know the difference between the two. But in the end, can I trust that the love that will not let me go will have me where he wants me in the end? I need to remember that through all my decisions, the good ones and the bad ones, God is working his purpose out. So at the start of our last uh, Bible reading um, this morning, let me ask you to pause for a moment and ask that question with me. What do you believe in? What do you think about the sovereignty of God? I, I don't mean in theory. We all know how to tick the right box. I mean, in practice, functionally, do you believe in the reality of God's sovereignty? When you're at a crisis point and it's decision time, how instinctive is it for you to fall back on the promise of a God who is in total control? And does that confidence show itself in grateful, prayerful, childlike confidence? This week we've seen that God's sovereign care and control over his world extends right down to the tiniest details of an individual life as God effortlessly guides every event in the direction of his final purpose. But it's a care and it's a control that can only be seen with the eye of faith. And if you're anything like me, that's a lesson I need to learn and relearn. In the film, when, when uh, Harry met Sally, Harry explains his dark side like this. He says, <coughs> when I buy a new book, I read the last page first. N nothing particularly unusual about that. It's the reason. When I buy a new book, I read the last page first. That way, in case I die before I finish, I'll know how it ends. That, my friend, is a dark side. Well, if we were flying out from Heathrow today and grabbed the book of Ruth from W.H. Smith on our way out and read it for the first time, what would we discover on the last page? that we've been reading a Shakespearean tragedy with a kind of Romeo and Juliet ending? Or a Disney fairy tale story with a we all lived happily ever after ending? Or would we discover we've been reading something far, far more significant? Well, let's review the story so far briefly. 
in chapter one, disaster strikes. But this is no ordinary disaster. We get all kinds of signals flashing from the page, even in the opening verses, to alert us that something's going on here. Famine strikes Bethlehem, the house of bread of all places. One man, Elimelech, seeks refuge in a foreign country, but the, the country he chooses is Moab of all places. The country blacklisted by God. The land of hope becomes a place of death as Moab generously shares its curse with Elimelech's family. And after ten long years, all his widow has to show for her escape to Moab are three graves and two daughters-in-laws. When Naomi finally hears that the famine back home is over, only one of the daughters-in-law returns with her, Ruth, the Moabite. And you might remember that there is one burning question at the end of chapter 1, where is God in all this? Will the shadow of this disaster hang over the life of this family forever? Naomi hasn't stopped believing in God, but she has stopped believe God, believing in a God who can be gracious to her. In chapter 2, we see the beginnings of an answer. Ruth goes gleaning in the barley harvest. She just happens to stumble across the field of Boaz, a relative of Naomi. But throughout the chapter, again and again, the hope of romance, the future happiness, the however you want to put it, is dashed by one harsh, inconvenient fact. Ruth is a foreigner. She stands outside the covenant promises of God. And by the end of the barley harvest, all she has to show is enough food to keep her and Naomi alive through one more winter. Chapter 3 marks a turning point in the story. Naomi devises a plan for her faithful daughter-in-law, Ruth. She will help Ruth to find a new home, a new husband and a new family. Boaz, the close relative, he can act under the law to redeem this family and to raise up children to continue the family name. It's a bold plan. It's a risky plan. But it's a plan inspired by love and motivated by faith. And we discover that we are co-authors with God in directing the drama of our lives. But as we come to the end of chapter 3, there's an unexpected hitch. Boaz is not the closest relative after all. There is one other. And under the law, that unnamed someone else has a prior claim. So again, chapter 3 leaves us on the cliff edge. Who will redeem Ruth? Will it be Boaz or will it be this unnamed stranger? Well, that's where we pick up the story in chapter 4 this morning. But don't go rushing off to the last page, will you, to see if it all ends happily ever after. This isn't a Mills and Boone romance. This is God's word. It's given for our encouragement at each stage of the story. Let's ask God to teach us the lessons he wants us to learn. Even in the darkest moments when all seems lost and everyone has abandoned us, his is the love that will not let us go. So, scene one, or rather the prologue. Oh, love that will not let me go. Here comes theme one. Oh, light that follows all my way. Boaz wants to marry Ruth. He's uh, promised her he will if he can. 
and he's concerned to settle the matter quickly. He's not willing to wait for this unnamed relative to come to him, so he will track him down. It's going to be another scorcher of the day. Obviously, this doesn't take place in England. So uh, early in the morning, while Ruth and Naomi are still tucked up in bed, Boaz comes down to the city gates. This is the place where business is transacted. It's a kind of cross between the market square and the council chambers in Bethlehem. The city gates, even at this stage in the day, are abuzz with activity, merchants setting up their stalls, town councillors planning the business of the day. Boaz knows this is the place to find his man and to find witnesses for the deal that must be done. Notice what happens next, verse 1. Boaz went up to the town gate and sat down there just as, oh, we've had that before, haven't we? Just as the guardian redeemer had he had mentioned came along. I, I love the way the authorised version says it. And behold, the close relative. Behold, look at this. Would you believe it? We've seen this again and again, haven't we? Ruth just happens to glean in the field of Boaz and the relative just so happens to pass by at this time. These are no coincidences, are they? not just Boaz who's involved here. Keep that in mind as the negotiations get underway. Someone else is writing the script. Someone else is directing the plot. And someone else is doing that in your life too. I love Boaz's quiet authority. There's a kind of new side to Boaz emerging here. Look at verse 1. Come over here, my friend, and sit down, he says. I think if someone said to me, come over here and sit down, I might be inclined to do so. So he went over and sat down. Boaz took ten of the elders of the town and said, sit here. And they did so. Well, when the unnamed relative's been settled with a cup of coffee and the ten city elders have been assembled to uh, oversee the transaction, the proposition is put. And I want you to see how shrewdly Boaz holds back all mention of Ruth at this point. Now is not the right time to talk about her. He deals with the property question first. Naomi has some land inherited from her husband, which she is prepared to sell. And as it's put to the unnamed relative, it all sounds a very attractive proposition. Here is some land he can buy. Naomi's unlikely to have any kids who'll want it back in years to come, so he can buy this property. It will be his and in his family forever. In the tribal regime of the Old Testament, this is a very attractive proposition. This unnamed relative can enlarge his stake in the promised land. He can buy the property. At the same time, he can be kind to Naomi. He can take her under his roof without threatening his own family in any way. And look at the end of verse 4. I will redeem it, he says. I think in English that is, where do I sign? The unnamed relative snaps up Boaz's offer, and who can blame him? Now, this is great news for the, his family, of course. But it comes as a body blow to us. Well, that's it then. No romance. Mills and Boone out of business. And most worrying of all, no answer to that nagging question, where is God in all this? Can you just imagine? There was a webcam installed over the city gates. And Naomi and Ruth are watching events unfold over their coffee and croissant. Can you imagine them holding their heads in despair at this point? This looks like the end of the road. 
Have you ever been here? Does this resonate with you in any way? Just when you thought you were kind of picking up the pieces and life was getting back on an even keel, circumstances come and kick you in the teeth again. The cancer you thought was in remission makes an unwelcome return. The daughter we'd hoped had found Mr. Wright at last finds herself on her own again. After the trauma of a difficult pregnancy, the baby's born, but with a cleft lip. We just want life to be simple and straightforward, but it never is. It's anything but. But, remember, somebody else is writing the script. This is not the end of the story. Boaz is a canny operator. He knows this is the moment to mention Ruth. He says, verse 5, on the kind of okay, on the day you buy the land from Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite. Oh, we'd almost forgotten she was a Moabite, hadn't we? The dead man's widow, in order to remain, maintain the name of the dead with his property. At this point, the unnamed relative abruptly goes into reverse. There are those, normally women, who believe that men are incapable of a U-turn? <laughs> well, dear sisters, here is one. I've never seen anybody change their mind quite so quickly. Verse 6, then I, I, I cannot redeem it. And he kind of blurts out perhaps rather more honestly than he should, because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. I can't do it. Up to this point, Boaz's proposition has been a shrewd business deal. But he changes all that when he mentions in that Ruth comes in the small print. Do you notice how he puts it? On the day you buy the land from Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite. She is the wife of Elimelech's dead heir. She too must be redeemed. And the moment he mentions Ruth, he complicates the picture impossibly. Ruth is not too old to have children. By, any right, by, uh, any, by rights, any children she has will have a claim on Elimelech's inheritance. And what is more, Ruth is the Moabite. That rather muddies the water, doesn't it? The unnamed man will have to spend some of his own inheritance buying the land. Then he'll have to support Naomi. And then there's Ruth and any children she may have. And in the end, he'll have to give up the land he's purchased to Ruth's children because legally they will not be so much his as Elimelech's. And what is worse, he might be contaminated by the dreaded curse of the Moabites. So what at first looks like a lucrative business opportunity now turns out to be more of a poison chalice. To act as guardian redeemer under these circumstances looks unattractive indeed. The unnamed relative backs off quickly. And Boaz is free. And if we were a Pentecostal group, we would let out a huge whoop at this point but we're not. <laughs> More's the pity. Let's step back and think for a moment, shall we? Why does the unnamed man back off so quickly? Because it's going to cost him. He's going to have to give up part of his inheritance to secure the inheritance of someone else. And isn't that the whole point? 
when we see redemption properly, when we see redemption as the Bible sees redemption, we discover what a costly business it is. It calls for faithfulness way beyond law, faithfulness that is ready to sacrifice dearly to set us free. It can't be otherwise. When you and I were redeemed by a descendant of Boaz, no less, it cost him his very life. As Peter puts it, you, it wasn't with perishable things like silver and gold you were redeemed. It was with the precious blood of Christ. Redemption is wonderfully free to us. But it cost God more than we'll ever know. So yes, Boaz has been shrewd. He presents the components of the deal in such a way as to make its advantages all too clear to the unknown's relatives. But just remember, the results of this deal have never been in question, not for a moment. From our perspective, it may have looked like a very risky proposition at times. But through the early enthusiasm of the unnamed relative and his ultimate unwillingness, through the negotiating skills of Boaz, God has been guiding events in the direction he has chosen. The love that will not let me go. Well, what the unnamed relative is prepared to do, Boaz is not prepared to do, Boaz is thrilled to do. He will bear the cost of redeeming Naomi and uh, Ruth. And even Elimelech, look at verse 7. Ooh, what do we do with verse 7? The deal is cemented with this rather strange ceremony involving a spot of sandal swapping. I've never engaged in sandal swapping myself. Um, the very fact that the um, writer needs to explain it even to his own Jewish audience means that it is pretty obscure even to them. I assume that because the unknown stranger kind of flip-flops in what he should do, they hand over a flip-flop, but I couldn't find any of the commentators agreeing with that. <laughs> Let's forget that, shall we? Come with me for a moment on a journey. I want to take you for a moment to one of those posh public schools, the sort I've seen on telly. You, you know the kind where the boys call their father Pater. If uh, you'd done that in the school I went to, you'd have got beaten up and you would never have done that again. <laughs> but I brought you here because I want to show you these two huge honour boards that have pride of place in the school chapel. One is the list of this school's Nobel Prize winners. The other is the list of Olympic gold medal winners. These are the great ones in this fine establishment. I want to tell you two things this morning. First is that the honours board in heaven <coughs> looks very different. And the second is that God wants your name to be emblazoned on it. Only he measures greatness differently. Not in terms of celebrity, but in terms of sacrifice and service. Remember how the Lord Jesus puts it in Matthew 27, 25, sorry. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. 
I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. And the bewildered righteous will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? Well, we don't remember doing this. When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? We can't recall that. When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? We can't recall that at all. And the king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you did for me. It's as we give ourselves away. It's as we lose our lives in serving others that we find ourselves and we find life. And God wants to see your name emblazoned on the honours board of heaven along with Boaz. Boaz is willing to become less so that Naomi and Ruth can become more. Just think how, how absolutely countercultural that is. Just think how the world stops and stares every time it sees sacrifice like that. Just think how the world stops and stares when it sees churches being sacrificial like that. When it sees world mission being sacrificial like that. There's no defense against sacrificial love like this, is there? And the wonder is it translates into every language of the world. Notice, will you, how Boaz specifically mentions his purpose in acquiring Ruth. It will disappoint some of you. He doesn't put it down to romance. So, sorry, this is not a Mills and Boone story after all. In the end, Boaz's costly course of action arises out of his loyalty. His loyalty to Naomi and her family. Loyalty to, lo to God himself. Verse 10. I've also acquired Ruth the Moabite, Marlon's widow, as my wife, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property, so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from his own hometown. Today, you are witnesses. And so, Ruth is redeemed. Even though she couldn't look for anything from the Lord, she has received grace and mercy from God. Before we move on, have you noticed anything strange about chapter 4? After the highly charged emotions of that daring nighttime encounter at the threshing floor, why do we suddenly get embroiled in all this bureaucratic stuff at the city gates with elders and weird ceremonies involving sandals? I mean, it all sounds so frightfully unromantic, doesn't it? Well, when, it why is, when Boaz is so keen to marry Ruth, why can't we just all join in with Elton John and sing, Can't You Feel the Love Tonight? I mean, in our culture, when love and romance are, are very emotion-driven things, this, this business transaction feels so very out of place. Well, it may feel out of place to us, but it doesn't in heaven. We're being taught something very important here. That at the heart of God's covenant love, his hesed, is not romantic attachments, but a legal transaction. 
When we say God loves me, and I hope we can say that, we're not saying anything slushy or abstract. We're talking about something that is based on a legal transaction. Listen to this from Revelation chapter 5. We're kind of being taken to heaven. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. Why is Jesus worthy of the praise of heaven? Because he has purchased us with his blood. There was nothing romantic about that. That was a legal transaction. He paid for us with his blood. Which means that God is not only legally right to love us, it means he is legally bound to love us. Let me try this out on you, can I? I, I wonder if you could collectively and out loud, so this is not a kind of rhetorical thing, uh, I wonder if you could fill in the missing word from this well-known Bible verse. Don't be nervous. You will know what it is. <laughs> Here we go and shout it out. If we confess our sins, so you know where this is going, he is faithful and, and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Well done. But the question is, do you believe it? Because I wonder whether we do. See, if I was writing the Bible, and you should be profoundly grateful I didn't, if I was writing the Bible, I'd have said this. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and merciful and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness, which, of course, is true. But I have to tell you, it's not enough of the truth. I'm so glad that God isn't just merciful. The thing with mercy is you don't have to do it. Mercy is entirely discretionary. You have a choice. You don't with justice. Justice is required. It is not discretionary, it's mandatory. God does not just forgive me because he is merciful. He forgives me because he is just. Let me try this out on you. Supposing you, um, you pop into Costa or wherever works for, for you at the end of a long and hard day. The barista looks at you, she knows you, she sees you've had a long and hard day. And you say to her, I've had a long, hard day. I could do with a cappuccino, but I don't have any money. And she looks at you and she knows you and she feels sorry for you and she says, have a cappuccino on Costa. Two days later, you do the same thing. She looks slightly unsure, but because she's a nice girl, she gives you another cappuccino. You do it a week later, and she chucks you out with a flea in your ear. See, mercy has run out. But supposing, you have to use your imagination for this bit, because it isn't going to happen. Supposing I gave the barista my credit card details, and said, every time that person comes in, give them a cappuccino on me. She'll do it today, tomorrow, next week, next month, next year. It will never run out until FIC stop paying my salary. <laughs> do you see the difference between mercy and justice? 
And do you see how justice is more secure than mercy? Can we try the verse again? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and... And again, we should whoop with delight because the, our salvation is not based on a whim of God's good heart. It is based on a legal transaction in which the Lord Jesus declared on the cross, it is finished, and so it is. And that's why we can come to him with confidence. Right at the heart of the book of Ruth is a, is a business transaction, a legal transaction that mirrors the transaction in heaven. O light that follows all my way. Scene two, O joy that seekest me through pain. Look how the story comes to an end, will you, in verse 13. So, Ruth, uh, so Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. When he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to a son. At last, the long-for call comes. The call Naomi has waited years to hear. Mum, you're going to be a granny. Mum, come and meet your new grandson. Yes, this son is truly Boaz's son, as he's Ruth's son, but in another sense, he's Naomi's son. He's the heir of Elimelech's inheritance. News spreads like wildfire through Bethlehem. But did you notice what the women of the town say to Naomi? The, the women who exclaimed at the end of chapter 1, can this be Naomi? At that point, every ounce of security had been stripped away from her. The one whose name Pleasant said, I hate that name. You call me Mara. Because the Almighty's made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Hear what they say now. Verse 14. Praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He'll renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and is better to you than seven sons has given him birth. But they see the hand of God in this. They, they see God undoing the cycle of tragedy that began when Elimelech took his family from the house of bread to the land of curse right at the beginning. They see the look of contentment on Naomi's face. They see God restoring the joy and happiness to a woman whose life has become nothing but despair and loss. They see God's extraordinary provision through very ordinary means. Not without suspense and without, not, not without the need for lots and lots of faith. And this time, he doesn't contradict them. After all the sorrows and the tears, the pleasant one rejoices. I want you to listen hard with me this morning. What can you hear coming out of Bethlehem? I think you can hear singing. Praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you. Do you remember from chapter 1? And she was left. And she was left. Praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you. There's praise coming out of Bethlehem. And can I tell you this morning that God's always working for our joy. Dare you believe that? 
whichever chapter you're in right now, however uncomfortable your circumstances right now, God is working for your joy. I love the way Paul puts it in his letter to his, I don't know whether we're supposed to have favourites, but Philippians, Philippi seems to be Paul's favourite church. It certainly wasn't Corinth. And he says this, Convinced of this, I know I will remain, and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. And do you know where he got that from? He got that from God, who's always working for your progress and joy in the faith. C.S. Lewis puts it beautifully in The Last Battle. He says this, All their life in this world and all their adventures had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has ever read, which goes on forever and ever, in which each chapter is better than the one before. Dare you, dare you, let the praise of Bethlehem become the anthem of your heart. But again, sorry, there's, there's something odd here. I want you to come back with me to verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. When he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to a son. Well, I want to say, hang on a minute, what about the wedding? If uh, Pip, my wife, was here, she'd say, what was the dress like, Ruth? I would say, what did you eat at the reception? <laughs> We'd both say, where did you go on honeymoon? But listen, the Bible, the story's not interested in the wedding. Bad news for Hello Magazine. <laughs> it focuses on what comes next. And what does come next? The birth of a child. Oh, but there's something interesting here, isn't there? How, how many years did Ruth and Maron have together in their marriage in Moab? Ten years? Well, less than ten, but several. How many children did they have in that time? None. Now look again at verse 13. The Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. Isn't there something poignant about that? We're meant to notice that, aren't we? From the moment God issued that promise to Satan the serpent amidst the rubble of a fallen, cursed world, we've been waiting for the birth of a child. And we're meant to notice the birth of this child. And that's why they're singing on the streets of Bethlehem. A child has been born. And all of that is a glorious anticipation of another time when they will be singing over Bethlehem because of the birth of a child. Do not be afraid, I bring you great news that will cause great joy for all people. Today in the town of David, that's Bethlehem, a saviour has been born to you. Isn't that wonderful? Is that not wonderful? So, the story ends with Naomi, the woman who'd wept for the death of her husband and her son now cradling her grandson in her arms. Verse 16, Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son. 
And they, that's interesting, they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. And Obed means worshipper. But look with me again at verse 17, will you? There's so many really weird bits in this story, and here's one of them. The women living there said, Naomi has a son. And I want to say, really? I mean, when our son was born, my mum was pretty chuffed. And rightly so. But supposing she'd taken possession of him and gone round to all her friends saying, look, I've had a son. We'd have said, hang on a minute, mum. No, you haven't. He's ours. Give him back. Do you remember that awkward Margaret Thatcher moment when she declared outside Downing Street in 1989, we have become a grandmother. Whoops. Perhaps not her finest hour. Well, this isn't that. This is entirely appropriate because this story is the story of Naomi's redemption. And in this sense, Obed is her redeemer. Everything Naomi had had was stripped away, her husbands, her sons, her joy, her hope. But through very human means, through things that look so insignificant to us, little things, through the faithfulness of a foreign daughter-in-law, which was quite unexpected, through the faithfulness of Boaz, who is generous to a fault, through the reluctance of an unnamed relative who's concerned to protect his own interests, through all these things and a whole lot more, God is at work to reverse the tragedy in Naomi's life. O oh joy that seeketh me through pain. Well, let's think about the postscript, shall we? O cross that liftest up my head. Because before we wrap up our studies, we just need to reflect on one more time on some of the difficult bits in this story. The wounds heal, but does every scar disappear? I have scars in all sorts of interesting places on my body. The wound has healed, the pain has faded, but the scar remains. I have scars in my heart. The wounds have healed. The pain has faded. But I am slightly different because the scars remain. So is the pain and the loss completely airbrushed away? And the answer is no, frankly. The gospel doesn't promise to fix every problem and heal every hurt. The promise of the gospel is that out of the deepest pain and the deepest suffering, God is creating something different, something beautiful. It is often in our darkest times that God does his deepest work. To put it very badly, I want to go to Keswick and have my socks blessed, my, my, I have my life blessed to, to, to bits. But it often isn't at places like Keswick that God does his best work in me. It's when I'm in tears. My life feels in shatters and my heart is broken. And God, in the dark night of the soul, is revealing himself to me as the love who will not let me go. In a way he'll never do at Keswick or Word Alive or dare I say, UFM Family Week. I don't know about you, 
But as we've studied the overall theme of this book together, I wonder if it hasn't been misnamed. It certainly is the story of Ruth. But even more, it's the story of Naomi. She's there at the beginning and the spotlight is on her at the end. This isn't a love story, it's a redemption story. It's Naomi who suffers the great loss at the beginning and it's Naomi whose loss is overturned at the end. But of course, the story doesn't end with Naomi. Remember where we are in the unfolding drama of the Bible. We're in the middle of the dark days of the judges. Days when Israel had no king and everyone did as they thought saw fit. We badly need a king. And the family tree at the end of this book links Ruth and, ba and Boaz and Naomi with the king to come, with David. And because the child born to Ruth and Boaz is an ancestor of David's, that child is an ancestor of someone far greater than David. The family tree of Jesus of Nazareth, both in Matthew's Gospel and Luke's Gospel, contained the name of Boaz. And so it embraces Ruth and Naomi. The book of Ruth, I think, is a little bit like a Russian doll. It's the Bible within the Bible. Naomi, Ruth, Boaz, they're all part of a grand plan that finds its focus in Jesus. And I wonder if you've noticed that all the way through we're being, this book, we're being kind of ushered, ushered on forced to look forward. We're being prepared for Jesus, the descendant of David, the descendant of Jesse, the descendant of Obed, the descendant of Boaz and Ruth. And in the end, whether it's Naomi's story or Ruth's story, it's all part of the bigger Jesus story. And so is your life and mine. And the wonderful thing is that God's purposes are unstoppable. That doesn't mean that we hang around waiting for it all to happen like a bunch of bananas. The purposes of God are still being worked out through the lives of his people, through very small events, by moment by moment decisions, by the plans we make. And the way in which we use the opportunities that God gives us is all part of his plan to move us forward to the great day when Jesus will return Moab will be no more. And God's world will enjoy his shalom forever with Jesus in charge. Of course, Naomi doesn't see this, does she? As she spoons another helping of carrot and sweet potato mash into Obed's wide open mouth. But her tiny and insignificant story is part of something bigger. And so is Let's stop there.